Our scripture reading this morning is from the 10th chapter of the book of Revelation, and I'm reading from the English Standard Version. Then I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven, wrapped in a cloud with a rainbow over his head, and his face was like the sun, and his legs like pillars of fire. He had a little scroll open in his hand, and he set his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land and called out with a loud voice like a lion roaring. When he called out, the seven thunders sounded. And when the seven thunders had sounded, I was about to write. But I heard a voice from heaven saying, Seal up what the seven thunders have said, and do not write it down. And the angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land raised his right hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and what is in it, the earth and what is in it, and the sea and what is in it, that there would be no more delay but that in the days of the trumpet call to be sounded by the seventh angel, the mystery of God would be fulfilled, just as he announced to his servants, the prophets. Then the voice that I had heard from heaven spoke to me again, saying, Go take the scroll that is open in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel and told him to give me the little scroll. And he said to me, take and eat it. It will make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth it will be sweet as honey. And I took the little scroll from the hand of the angel and ate it. It was sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I had eaten it, my stomach was made bitter. And I was told, you must again prophesy about many peoples and nations and languages and kings. This is the word of the Lord. As we continue to preach through the book of Revelation, let's pray. God and Father, be with us now as we come to your word. Be speaking to us through it. May your spirit be ministering to our hearts and minds. Pray that you would be with all of us sinners as we sit under your word and seek to understand it. And be with me, a sinner, as I proclaim it. Pray all of this in the name of Jesus Christ, Savior of sinners. Amen. It's probably a universal experience to say something to someone, tell someone a story or share an idea, and then have them respond and realize that they've completely missed the point. Sometimes that happens in really funny ways, like, like I think about with my kids. This doesn't reflect well on my parenting, but there will be moments where, like, they'll be fighting, and they've been fighting all afternoon, and I'm exhausted, and I'm just like, listen, guys, listen, just stop fighting and get along with each other, and we will, like, go out to eat for dinner. And, um, and what will happen is they'll stop fighting, and it's bad parenting because you shouldn't blackmail your kids this way, but they'll stop fighting, 
and then they'll look at each other, and then, like, one of them will say, did we go to Sam's Drive-In? And then the other one will say, no, we always go to Sam's Drive-In. And then they'll be, like, jumping and biting and kicking each other, you know, 30 seconds later as they've, they, as my attempt to stop them from fighting, you know, you, they've completely missed the point, right? Sometimes it happens in deeper ways, too. Um, actually, one of the most humbling experiences as a pastor is when you will say something to someone and then they'll respond in a way that just leaves you with this sense of, man, <laughs> they have not heard what I was saying. We've, we've noticed that a lot. It's a heavy, it's a heavy example, but in, um, in Elizabeth's cancer, as we've journeyed through that, we've had a lot of conversations with people about healing. And I remember this one time, and this was with a guy who does not go here, so you don't need to look around suspiciously <laughs> or worry that this was you. But where he, um, he just said, you know, I just want you to know that I am completely sure that, you know, God's going to heal Elizabeth. And... Um, and my response to that in the moment, because I'm a preacher and sometimes don't know when to just say thanks, is, was to say, like, I mean, I appreciate that, and I definitely appreciate your prayers, and it's good to pray for healing, but, I mean, it just doesn't work that way in the first place. Like, we don't have that promise from God. We have a promise of, like, final healing and the resurrection, but, I mean, you know, there is no guarantee of that in this life. And also, there's all this other, like, God is at work and with us, and we're grateful for his presence, and you know, I mean, and want to glorify him through this, so be praying for all of that stuff, too. You know, it's not just about that. And, um, you know, so I, I gave him this little speech, and he looks at me, and he thinks for a minute, and then he's like, yeah, that's really true. And I was like, thank you. Like, I'm a good pastor. And he's like, 100%. Like, I just know that she's going to be healed. <laughs> and, and again, you're just like, oh, you've missed the point. And that's, I think, part of the, the key to the way that we approach the book of Revelation as well. One of the, the themes for me as I've sat with this book is in recognizing how much I think the reason some of us struggle with it and don't know what to do with it is because we get sort of one of the themes of the book of Revelation, but we think that that theme is the point when it isn't actually the point of the book. The theme that I'm talking about there is judgment. Certainly one of the themes of the book of Revelation is these sort of visions of God's judgment that are happening. Uh, the four horsemen of the apocalypse that we looked at a few weeks ago, or these first six trumpets of God's wrath that we, that we read about last week, are scenes of judgment, and they tend to be vivid, and they're the things that people seize on. But the problem is that we can get so focused on that that we actually miss there's another theme, and in some ways, that other theme is really the point of the book of Revelation. It runs alongside that kind of theme of judgment, and it's the theme that this chapter is one of several we've already seen and will continue to see throughout the book sounds. And I'm going to suggest that by missing the point, by missing that theme, we've actually missed the point of Revelation at times. So what I'm going to suggest this morning is that we just look at this chapter and that from it we learn two things— that together really help form one of the main points of this book. The first thing we learn is about God's mercy. We learn what God is up to in the world, what he's doing, and that it is showing mercy and saving people. But you might not have gotten that on our first reading of the text, so let's go ahead and dig into it. First of all, to set the stage, um, last week we looked at Revelation 8 and 9, and if you remember, there's these trumpets blown, and there are these pictures of God's judgment in history in terms of sort of natural cataclysm and in terms of nations turning against nations and wars and things like that. There are pictures of God's judgment happening within history. And then 
after the sixth trumpet is done and we get to the end of chapter 9 and it says that people still don't repent, then we're ready for the seventh trumpet to blow and final judgment to fall. But that is not what happens here in chapter 10. Instead, before the seventh trumpet, we get two chapters with other visions. Um, So pick it up here in chapter 1 as that story of the trumpets is interrupted. John says, I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven, wrapped in a cloud with a rainbow over his head, and his face was like the sun, and his legs like pillars of fire. So we meet this heavenly figure, this mighty angel. Um, This is the second time a mighty angel has been mentioned. The first one was in Revelation 5. And some people think this figure actually is supposed to represent Jesus. It certainly sounds kind of divine and glorious. Other people think it's just some messenger representative of God, and that's why it's got the divine imagery. But we have this angel, and then verse 2, it says that he had a little scroll open in his hand. And he set his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land and called out with a loud voice like a lion roaring. When he called out, the seven thunders sounded. Now the key thing to notice there is that this angel has this open scroll in his hands. And again, if you've been with us in our series through Revelation, that probably sounds familiar too. In chapter 5, there's this scroll, which we said is sort of God's plan of judgment and salvation for the world. And it's sealed with seven seals. And the seals were broken in chapters 6 and 7. And now the scroll pops up again, but it's open at this point. It's as if God's plan of salvation and judgment is starting to be fulfilled. And then this figure cries out, and it's like seven thunders. And then we're told in verse 4, When the seven thunders had sounded, I was about to write, but I heard a voice from heaven saying, Seal up what the seven thunders have said, and do not write it down. All right, so this is one of those many weird things in Revelation that we're like, what? (laughs) Why did you just tell us about these seven thunders? And then you're like, oh, but then I was told not to write down what they said. So that language there is a direct reference to the book of Daniel. And this thing basically happened several times in the book of Daniel. So example in Daniel 8, he says, The vision of the evenings and the mornings that has been told is true, but seal up the vision, for it refers to many days from now. And in chapter 12, God says, But you, Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book until the time of the end. In both those cases, what's happening in the book of Daniel is he's getting these sort of visions of God's plan of salvation in the future, and then he gets this point where sort of the end comes and the final judgment comes, but he's told, seal this up. We're not ready to talk about this yet. And that seems to be what's happening here in Revelation 2, that this is this moment where we expect this proclamation of final judgment, as we already said. We expect the seventh trumpet to blow, and these seven thunders probably represent that final voice of judgment. But John is told, wait, we're not going to go there yet, because first there's something else that needs to happen. So what else needs to happen? Verse 5. The angel who I saw standing on the sea and on the land raised his right hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and what is in it, the earth and what is in it, and the sea and what is in it. So this angel is swearing before God, making an oath, covenants, the biblical word, this promise that something's going to happen. And what is that? It is that there would be more, no more delay but that in the days of the trumpet call to be sounded by the seventh angel, the mystery of God would be fulfilled just as he announced to his servants, the prophets. So this angel comes and swears that the mystery of God is going to be fulfilled, that that is what has to happen before the seventh trumpet blows and the judgment comes. 
So they're naturally going to say, well, what is the mystery of God? In the New Testament, repeatedly, that language of God's mystery is used for the gospel. And in particular, for the way the gospel is calling people from every tribe and tongue and nation and joining them together as the people of God. Just one example from Colossians 1, where Paul says, To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. So he's saying there's this mystery of God, and that mystery is this work he's going to do to save all kinds of people, particularly for Paul there in Colossians, Jews and Gentiles, or John in Revelation, people of every tribe and tongue and nation. The gospel's coming to save all these people. There's a moment when Jesus is about to die, and his disciples come to him in Matthew 24, and what they ask is this. Um, They come to him on the Mount of Olives, and they say, tell us what will these things be, and what will be the signs of your coming and of the end of the age. There's a lot in Jesus' response that we're not going to cover, but one of the ways to sum it up is in verse 14, where Jesus says, And the good news about the kingdom will be preached throughout the whole world so that all nations will hear it, and then the end will come. So they come to Jesus and say, Jesus, when when is this going to be completed? When are you going to come and bring justice and judgment on the Romans, is what the disciples were really interested in. But when are you going to come and make all things right? And Jesus' response is that first... The gospel of the kingdom must be preached throughout the whole world, and only then will the end come. So coming back to Revelation, and here's what's going on there, right? Like we said in Revelation 8 and 9, we get these pictures of God's historical judgment, and we're anticipating anticipating this declaration of God's final judgment. Um, And that is a theme of Revelation, like we said. But here, chapter 10 and then chapter 11, when we look at it, we see suddenly these other visions break in and say, but wait, before that final judgment comes, there's another work that God is going to do first. And that is his great work of salvation. The mystery of the gospel is at work now, he's saying. That is happening, and God has sworn a solemn oath that it will be completed, and only after it's completed will the seventh trumpet sound and judgment come. Let's talk about what that means. First, a maybe unhelpful way that some people talk about that idea. There's this very specific way some people read this verse, um, as if it means that Jesus cannot come back until there's like this certain quota of missionaries to every people group in the world or something like that. And that's probably not the right way to read that sort of hope of the gospel going to the nations and completing its work, both because it's very hard to actually know what what that means specifically, right? You're not given some math in the Bible. And frankly, because in Scripture, it's clear that we're supposed to recognize that Jesus could come back anytime, right? And so there's not like quotas that have to be fulfilled. But while that specific idea has issues, the general truth is true, which is that in Revelation— John is in the middle of this vision of judgment, but then he interrupts that vision in order to stress to us that God is doing another work as well. He is also at work saving and drawing all kinds of people to himself by his grace. John sees two forces at work in the world. Two forces. There is human sin and God's judgment on sin, and then there is God's salvation and the good news of Jesus, rescuing people and giving them new life. Both of those things are happening. 
But really what we're supposed to recognize, I think, is that it's that message of salvation that should stand out to us and strike us as remarkable, which is why it's kind of put here as an interruption that calls attention to it. Here's what I mean by that being remarkable. Even though maybe we don't think about it this way, God's judgment is actually like a totally normal part of the story of the universe. Like if I said, well, once there was this God, and he made everything, and it was all really good, then he made people, and they messed everything up, and so he just wiped them all out. Right? Like that's actually a very logical story to tell about the universe. What scripture says, though, is that instead of just coming in judgment and wiping out all of those people, God instead chooses at great cost to himself to work salvation for millions of them and draw them back to himself and restore them in grace. And that is what is happening right now. God's mysterious plan of salvation is being fulfilled. So what does that mean for us when we think about the world? It means a lot of things, but let me just suggest one thing that that should lead us to recognize is that we are supposed to live in a way that prioritizes mercy and salvation over justice. We should live in a way that prioritizes mercy and salvation. Now this one might be tricky, so bear with me, but here's the thing. God is gracious and God is just, and those are both very true statements, and we need to wholeheartedly believe both of those if we're going to believe the Bible. But what we're about to say about God's mercy does not mean that God is not also just. And it, do, it doesn't mean that God has like multiple personality disorder where, you know, the angry God and the, the nice God are like at war with each other. God is both of those things in perfect harmony. But while in scripture God is both of those things, there is a real scriptural testimony to the idea that God's delight is particularly in showing mercy. That while he is willing and pleased to execute justice as it is necessary he is especially pleased in forgiving and saving those who trust in him. Take this from the prophet Isaiah, where he's been declaring God's justice, but then he says, but the Lord waits to be gracious to you, and he rises up, he exalts himself to show mercy to you. Or Paul, um, who declares that God desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Now again, that idea that God is both just and merciful but that there is a special delight he takes in showing mercy. That is mysterious, and we need to make sure that we don't turn that into an excuse to deny God's justice. But it is a real thing that Scripture speaks to, that God takes special delight in showing mercy and forgiving and saving. And so we ought to as well. In fact, we ought to doubly, because God both is an example to us of doing that, and he's someone who has shown us mercy. And so we should doubly take delight in his mercy and forgiveness and grace. And so in practice, what that means is that we should always be hoping for and longing to see sinners find grace and be restored. There is um, this tendency that many of us can have when we think about our enemies or people we dislike, whether that's personally on an individual level, whether that's sort of culturally, you know, watching the news or whatever, we can take great delight in seeing justice done to our enemies, and we can actually feel angry at the thought of them finding mercy. We can try to deny that mercy to them, and that is sin. We should hope that even the people that, are, that, that we hate the most in the world, right, we should hope for them to find restoration and grace and forgiveness and peace. And really that's something we talk about how people have a 
have struggles with God's judgment and justice, and that's true. But we really need to recognize, like, I think we do actually have issues with God's grace as well. Like, we really do expect that the world should work in such a way that people just get what they deserve, except us. And, you know, that, 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 that things should, you know, fall on their head, that the evil that they've done to other people ought to be repaid to them. And there's actually something in our hearts that rebels at the thought that we should hope to see them find mercy. Now, to be clear in that, again, God is just as well, and that does not undo the reality that there's a right place for justice in the world, right? A, a criminal who commits terrible crimes, like, that they should go to prison, right? And, you know, and face the consequences for those crimes. But we should also hope to see them, um, you know, find a place of repentance and, and, and restoration and mercy from the Lord. The danger comes when we let that desire for justice keep us from desiring mercy. So that is the first thing we see in this passage, is God's mercy. And then it also, I think, ties that mercy to our mission. We learn about our mission and the message we are supposed to carry in this age. So pick up in verse 8. Then the voice that I had heard from heaven spoke to me again, saying, Go, take the scroll that is open in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and the land. So the scroll of God's plan of judgment and salvation, he says, Now, John, you go and take it. And then verse 9, I went to the angel and told him to give me the little scroll. And he said to me, Take and eat it. It will make your stomach bitter. When your mouth, it will be sweet as honey. That is strange. <laughs> That's not what you would expect, right? You would expect take and read the scroll, but not take and eat it. But that's actually a reference to the Old Testament. Many of the Old Testament prophets, when they talk about their calling, it's pictured as eating the word of God and then sort of like preaching it again. So like Jeremiah says, when your words came, I ate them. They were my joy and my heart's delight, for I bear your name, Lord God Almighty. And the explicit image that um, John is drawing here is from the call of the prophet Ezekiel. So in Ezekiel, he has this vision where he is also given a scroll with writing on both sides. It's the same as that scroll in Revelation 5 and the scroll here. And here's, let me just read to you from Ezekiel 3. God says to him, son of man, eat whatever you find here. Eat this scroll and go speak to the house of Israel. So I opened my mouth and he gave me this scroll to eat. And he said to me, Son of man, feed your belly with this scroll that I give you and fill your stomach with it. Then I ate it, and it was in my mouth as sweet as honey. So that sounds very similar to what we just read in Revelation 10. But there's two differences, and we should note them. The first is that Ezekiel 3 doesn't have the, the thing about being bitter in your stomach. And some people think that's because what was bitter for John was that he was declaring God's judgment as well as God's mercy. I don't actually think that makes sense of Ezekiel. What I think is that that's anticipating something we're going to preach on when we get to Revelation 11, which is that one of the themes we'll see in chapter 11 is that one of the main ways the church bears witness to God's salvation is through her own suffering. And so he's feeling the bitterness of that reality. But that's the first difference. And then the second difference, if you look in verse 1, you'll notice that Ezekiel is told to eat what you find, eat this scroll, and go speak to the house of Israel. Whereas John in Revelation, in verse 11, is told, you must again prophesy about many peoples and nations and languages and kingdoms. So why that change? In the Old Testament era, when Ezekiel is a prophet, God's work of salvation had begun 
but it had not yet reached its climax. God's work of salvation had begun in gathering the people of Israel, constituting them as the set-apart people of God, but the hope was always for the nations to be gathered in, and that hadn't happened yet. Whereas now, what John is doing is he's prophesying about all of the nations in this hope of God's salvation and the mystery of the gospel being fulfilled. That is changed in Jesus, that we are all being gathered in from every tribe and tongue and nation. But then the thing to notice is that the way God is doing that, the way God is drawing these people in, is through John taking God's word into himself, taking this plan of God for salvation into himself, and then speaking it, which is what the Old Testament image of it being sweet in his mouth, right? Honey in his mouth is supposed to mean he's speaking it as good news to the world. That is a picture of John's mission. And as chapter 11 makes clear, it's a picture of our mission as the church as well. What does that mean for us then? That we have this idea, this theme of God's mercy, but then we recognize that we're supposed to somehow take it into ourselves and speak it to the world. Let me suggest three things that that should teach us. One, our message needs to center on God's mercy rather than God's justice. Our message as Christians needs to center on God's mercy rather than God's justice. Now that, in some ways, runs right along what we said with the first point about how we need to delight in God's mercy. That does not mean, just like we said when we— talk about our delight, that does not mean that God is not just, and it doesn't mean we shouldn't tell people the truth about his justice in the world. But if you were with us last week, you remember the point of chapters 8 and 9, one of the main points it was trying to make, is that God's judgment never brings people to repentance, right? God's judgment and justice on their own never actually bring people to repentance. What you need is something else. What you need is God's mercy. And that is a lesson that Too many Christians, too many churches have failed to really internalize. Uh, Oftentimes, churches try to use God's justice as the means of trying to get people to change and follow his commandments. I mean, I remember growing up in a sort of evangelical church where the message would be, don't sin, because if you sin, God's going to be mad at you, and he's going to punish you, and then you're going to go to hell. Therefore, don't sin. that, That was how they would try to, you know, encourage us kids to, you know, to do what we were supposed to do. And that is an example of missing the point. God's justice is true, but it is in a real sense secondary in the Christian story. The focus of the Christian story is on God's mercy. It is not just that God has wrath at sin, but the focus of the story is that God takes that wrath on himself and bears it in our place, suffering the punishment we deserve. It is that God from eternity past, the Father planned to work salvation for us, though we rebelled against him. And the Son came and worked that salvation in his death and resurrection. And the Spirit is now applying that salvation to our hearts and drawing us to him. That is the central thrust of Scripture. And that means that when we think about how people change and what our message is to people, that should be our message as well. That the way you get people to change and grow and obey God is not by threatening them with God's justice, but it's to say that God loves you, and he gave himself for you, and he is with you, and therefore um, he is inviting you into this path of life and blessing that exists in his will. And the more that we build people up in that, the more obedience is actually in power, in a way that just fear of judgment never could. So that is the first thing we learn from that, that our message should center on God's mercy. The second thing is that our hope 
needs to rest on God's merciful salvation rather than moral reformation. Our hope needs to rest on God's salvation rather than moral reform. And this might be a challenging one for some of us, but as I reflected on that theme of God's mercy and how we can kind of miss it, right, miss the point, um, one of the things that I found myself thinking about, I often hear people, I often hear some of us talk about the need in our day and in our country and in the place that we live for moral reform, right? That people need to um, start coming back to good Christian values and um, that we should have prayer back in schools and kids learning to read from Bible verses and teaching them to follow biblical sexual ethics and all of those things. And those are not wrong desires, right? (laughs) It's not a bad thing to wish that people would Um, would be following God's moral will in Scripture. But if that's the thing we focus on, I I just feel really uncomfortable oftentimes. Because the way people talk is it's like, man, if they just had prayer in schools, like, everything would be fixed. If they, you know, if if people just, like, stopped disobeying in these few kind of obvious moral ways, like, everything would be better in the world, and, and we would all be happy. And that worries me, because that is also missing the point. In Scripture, it is not moral reformation that brings restoration to the world. It is God's salvation in Jesus. And, um, and that means that when we read, like in chapters 8 and 9, about God's judgment coming against humankind, um, this is one of the main points of the book of Romans, which we preached through a couple of years ago, the first couple of chapters. When we read about God's judgment coming, that means it's not just coming against, like, Hollywood parties and, you know, and sort of, you know, coastal, you know, like that that part of the world it's coming against the whole world and that includes the sort of white picket fence you know moral you know i mean midwestern world as well that that world where you know we all fly american flags and kids pray in schools that world too if that's what we're looking to for salvation is under the judgment of god what we need to long for is to see people meet jesus and find in him salvation and And while moral reform might seem like it's far off in our world, the beautiful thing about that hope is that that hope is just as real in the moment that we live in as it ever was in the past. In fact, maybe even more so. One of the reasons I worry sometimes about how people talked about that sort of more moral culture of the past is that I think that there were times that that culture we created in Europe and America in the past actually kept people from realizing their need for Jesus. That they had this sense that they, you know, they went through these sort of motions, they said the prayers, and, you know, and observed the outward kind of moral rules, and therefore, yeah, they're good to go. They're Christians, they're going to heaven. And um, that sort of vaguely Christian civil religion actually masked for them their need to meet Jesus and find in him a real life-changing relationship and true forgiveness for sins. It was a consistent theme in the ministry of the great 19th century preacher Charles Spurgeon. He was in Great Britain, but, um, but one of the things that he pointed out a number of times was how there was this sort of deeply morally obsessed strain in British culture that actually kept them from hearing the gospel. For example, he, sa- he says at one point, many preachers have had to confess the uselessness of mere moral preaching. There is no instance, I believe, on record where the mere preaching of the law made a man love God 
or where the heart ever was or ever could be renewed by inculcating good works. And one of Spurgeon's fears was that they lived in this world that was all about just moral teaching, just the law, and that that was actually a way that the devil had come into England and kept people from being saved. Um, And instead, he says this, he says, the chief aim of the enemy's assaults is to get rid of Christ, to get rid of the atonement, to get rid of his suffering in the place of men. What we always need to be seeking in terms of the message that we're communicating to the world is a message that centers on Christ, the atonement, and his suffering in the place of sinful human beings. And inasmuch as our desire for morality actually distracts us from that, it can actually be really hurtful to our ability to proclaim God's salvation. So our hope needs to rest on God's salvation rather than moral reformation. And just a note about that. Well, I know I kind of talked about that in a sort of broad, sweeping cultural way. That's very much true of your and my hearts as well. I think part of why we try to force moral reform on the culture sometimes is because we think that's how we can change ourselves. We think that if we can just sort of like beat ourselves with the justice and the law and the rules and the morality, that that will somehow cause our hearts to change. But the good news of Scripture is that the mystery of God has been revealed and is at work in the world. The mystery of his grace in Jesus. And that that, as we believe it for ourselves, is also what starts to change us. And that brings us to the last thing I think we should learn from the truth that God's mercy is our mission. And that is that our mission needs to be driven by God's mercy. Which is to say that our motivation needs to rest on the mercy of God. One of the reasons that we can struggle to talk about Jesus with other people, to share the gospel with other people, is because we haven't really experienced it deeply enough ourselves. Not that we don't believe it at all, but we haven't really tasted the sweetness of it, and so it's hard for then for it to be honey on our tongues. Indeed, one of the interesting pictures here, one of the interesting things about John's commission is that It's only after he takes God's message of judgment and salvation into himself and eats it, right, that then he's able to proclaim it to the world. Our struggle to share the good news often comes from a lack of lived familiarity with it. Let me give you just one example that I think indicates this in my own heart as much as anyone else's. But a lot of times when we discuss evangelism, what people will say is, man, I just don't like that because I just feel so guilty. I just feel, you know, guilty and condemned for failing in this way. And so, you know, I just feel that. And here's the question that I'm left with when you reflect on the reality of the gospel. How can you be crippled by guilt about not sharing the message that God has paid for all of our guilt on the cross? How can we condemn ourselves for not speaking the truth that there is no condemnation now for those who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ? The sort of guilt that we feel in moments like that actually reveals that we have failed to believe the gospel for ourselves in that moment. That we are looking to to the law. We're looking to those moral works of ourselves to be the thing that we stand on instead of delighting ourselves in the reality that in Jesus Christ, God has freely given himself for us. And the more we really believe and experience that, the more we taste of God's grace, the easier it actually becomes for us to then proclaim it to the world. That's the thing I would invite you to do this week, and it will fit hopefully well with your Thanksgiving rhythms as well. Um, That God has been unimaginably merciful to us. He has worked our salvation even though we don't deserve it. 
So what I invite you to do is to just spend some time this week, set aside a little time to reflect on or journal on or whatever you do, this question, why, how has God been good to me? How has he been merciful to me in Jesus? Just try to spend some time really reflecting on that and reflecting it in concrete ways. Like, man, I have, I have rebelled in this way this last week, but that was covered by the blood of Jesus. Spend some time just applying that to your heart. Do that and see how God's mercy begins to change you. That is the point that we need to recognize. If I can come back to the big question behind this sermon. That is the point that we not, need to not miss. First of all, that's the point we need to not miss in the book of Revelation. And we'll see it continuing as we move forward. That there is judgment in this book, and that is real, but um, that there is also salvation and grace. And in many ways, that is the point that God is trying, that John is trying to make. That our hope is in this God who has worked salvation for us and is graciously drawing us into salvation and will at the end restore all things and dwell with us on earth. That is the main point of this book. And that is also the central point that we need not to miss about Christianity. It is a faith that rests on the salvation God has worked in his grace. That is the point of this book. Let's not miss it. Let's pray. God and Father, I thank you for the free grace that you have showed to me, though I do not deserve it. Thank you that each of us stands before you on the grounds of Jesus Christ alone in every area of life, that there is nothing more that we can do to make you more pleased with us. You have done it all in Jesus. I pray that you would build up our hearts to more and more trust in him and hope in him, proclaim the good news of his grace until he comes again. I pray all of this in his name. Amen.